Alan and Tina had been married for 13 months. But their relationship was very rocky. There was little trust. There was little selflessness. It was unhealthy. It was causing great harm between these two. One day, Tina discovered that she was pregnant. But she didn't want to disrupt her new law career, so she secretly got an abortion. A year later, when Alex found out, he walked out, he exploded, he raged. A year later, they were divorced. Let's say that you become acquainted with Tina five years later. She's become a believer in Jesus Christ, but she continues to wrestle with one major hurdle. I know the Lord has forgiven me, but how can I forgive myself for killing my unborn child? What do you say to Tina? As a fellow believer, how do we counsel her? We are called that we must help those. God puts us into contact with other human beings who are in pain. He doesn't simply want us to hand them off, push them off to professionals. God asks to walk with them. He wants us to walk with them, with the help of a pastor, with the help of professionals, with the help of other friends, but he asks, walk with that person. How do you do that? How do you lead Tina to deal with her inability to forgive herself? This issue may seem hard to relate to for some of us, but as a matter of fact, in today's world, the popularity of self-forgiveness is out there. Psychologists tell us we must forgive ourselves. We must be able to forgive our past wrongs and to get rid of those things so that we can put a bright face on everything that we do. We have to tell ourselves it's okay for us to move on. Don't be so hard on yourself. Give yourself permission to fail. Give yourself that opportunity to go forward. That's what today's therapists say. How about that? Have you ever felt that uneasy, familiar queasiness in your stomach when you start to think of wrongs you've done in the past? When you start to think of things you should have said, hurts you shouldn't have said, can you forgive yourself? Do you have children who have left the church? There's a special agony there. What could I have done? What could I have said? Maybe perhaps in that last conversation before they walked out the door, I could have said something a little bit different. What did I do wrong? How? Why? It's so hard to get rid of that. We may even slip into the kind of conclusion that Tina came to, that our emotional and spiritual pain is a result of the fact that we have not been able to forgive ourselves And only when we can do that will we retain and keep peace. Would it surprise you to hear that the scripture says absolutely nothing about self-forgiveness? There's nothing there. 
There is not one word or verse or even a description of anybody coming to terms with the pain in his or her life by forgiving him or herself. The notion of forgiving oneself may sound biblical, but in fact, it's not there. There is a lot of information about examples and commands to exercise forgiveness. The Bible always presents forgiveness as a relational issue, something that takes place between two parties who are in a relationship with one another. But one cannot forgive oneself as much as one could even kiss oneself. There are people who have tried to find biblical background for this issue. For the practice of forgiving oneself, they mention texts and they give examples, but the examples they give are God's forgiveness to us, the forgiveness that we are called to give to one another. Again, there is nothing in the Bible about forgiveness of self. Where does this leave us today then? If someone says, I just can't forgive myself. Well, one thing we shouldn't do is take that person's statement at face value and assume that self-forgiveness is actually what they need. Instead of trying to help them forgive themselves, which is impossible to do, we should instead try to find out what the real cause of their spiritual pain. We find in Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21, we find Paul's words. But now the righteousness of God has been given manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. As a gift. Though the through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as appropriation by his blood to be received by his faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. And the justifier is the one who has faith in Jesus. In Romans 3, Paul is expounding on one of his favorite themes. That the law is useless for earning or winning or demonstrating personal righteousness. We cannot count on it to make us right with God. Because our ability to keep the law is so flawed. Reliance upon the law to earn God's favor leads only to death. The question that Paul must answer for his readers then is this. If the law is able to bring us to righteousness, where do we need to get it? I'm sorry, if the law is unable to bring us to righteousness, where do we get it? Ah, says Paul, let me tell you about New righteousness, one that is guaranteed to reconcile us to God and to bring us new life. This new righteousness has come from God himself, and the one in whom it is given is Jesus Christ. In him we have our righteousness, his perfection, his righteousness. His purity is imputed to us, and we are made right with God. All we need to do is believe 
no more self-reliance. Now we must simply have faith that you cannot do it by yourself. That it is Christ who has already done it. We shouldn't even pretend that we can come close to making up for our sin and sinfulness. Give up, says God, and rely on my gift of new righteousness through my son, Jesus Christ. Of course, in every real sense, this new righteousness is nothing new. Paul says that the righteousness has been revealed already in the law and the prophets. Not in the dependence upon them, but in what they teach us about where righteousness actually comes from. The law teaches us about our sin. A truth that Paul himself makes clear just before our text. And it reveals to us that we are unable to do what God demands of us. The fact that God does not destroy his people because of their failures reveals his graciousness to us. He counts his people as righteous, even though they're not. It's like a carnival attendant who is letting riders onto the roller coaster. They must be 40 inches tall. And someone comes along who's 38 inches tall. And the attendant says, go ahead. God has made us all 40 inches tall when we're only 38 inches. Similarly, God counted his Old Testament people as righteous, even though they weren't, and even though Christ's sacrifice had not yet been done. All of the rules and regulations that Israel was supposed to follow were never meant to earn God's favor by making them righteous or declaring them righteous. They were there to thank God for making them righteous already. All Israel had to do was believe in God's graciousness and obey God out of gratitude. This is what Abraham did. And as Paul goes on to describe in the next chapter of Romans, in chapter 4. In other words, Christ is actually the continuation of God's favor for his people. He is the perfect illustration and definite revelation of it. In verse in Romans chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, Paul makes the picture of the new righteousness a little clearer and sharper by saying that Christ is the sacrifice of atonement. His death pays the price for all of our sins. And that up to now in the world history, all of those sins are paid for. And in the future, all of those sins are paid for. All of the unpublished sins have been paid for. God himself pays the price for sin through Jesus Christ. And by doing so, he is at the same time just and compassionate. His justice is expressed towards Jesus Christ, while his compassion is directed towards us. God forgives us in Jesus Christ. He cancels our sin. He atones for us. He reconciles him to us. This is the chief kind of forgiveness that the Bible talks about. The only other kind of forgiveness the Bible talks about is our responsibility to forgive one another. We are to imitate God. God said, Paul says in Ephesians 5, and to live a life of love just as God 
loved us. We are to forgive one another when it hurts us. In fact, the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Christ taught his disciples, puts it very strongly. In it, we are to lead, let, we are to lead to be praying, prayful for forgiveness, and to pray for the knowledge that God's forgiveness is of us. In some way, this is connected to our willingness to forgive others. We imagine God when we forgive. We become conformed to Christ and his image when we forgive others. And that is all the Bible has to say about forgiveness. Again, there is nothing about self-forgiveness. When we say that we are not able to forgive ourselves, the Bible's response is, that is not the problem here. Because in Christ, we are right with God, and we are heir to everlasting life. One day, my son was studying the planets in our solar system. And he learned about Ceres, which is apparently a dwarf planet out there someplace. Um, you know, since I went to school, they're changing all of this. Now Now we have dwarf planets. Now we have super gas, whatever. Um, he said, they're serious out there. I said, I didn't know about this. And his response to me was, you don't know about the universe? Of course, my argument is that there is a problem if you know or remember too much. Imagine what it would be like if we could remember everything that's happened in our lives. There are people that are actually like that. There's a person by the name of Rick Barron. He can tell you the day, the date, the time of everything he has witnessed, seen or heard since he was 11 years old. He's now 42. He's one of the few in America who are called super autobiographical memory. According to researchers that are studying this phenomena in the University of California at Irvine. Another person is Jill Price. She is 45 years old and remembers every part of her life since she was 14. She considers this ability a disability. A curse because she can't turn it off. Every detail since 1980, when she got up, who she met, what she did, what she ate is locked in her brain. The memories come flooding back with a certain smell, a certain picture, a certain sound. She is a widow and a school administrator and often struggles with these vivid pictures that crowd her mind and stop her from relaxing and sleeping. So our minds in the way they were made are really designed to some extent, to actually forget. It is important to forget. In 2014, it is important to forget some things that happened. In 2013, in 2012. Paul knew the importance of this forgetting. I'm sure he had a lot of things on his mind that he would like to forget about. But we read about this idea and the importance of forgetting in Philippians 3. Verses 13 to 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
I would like to suggest that it is important to forget. And I'm going to suggest three reasons why it is important to forget. Number one, forget the past. It's past. It's over. It's history. We all have things we would like to forget. Maybe words that were spoken in anger. Maybe a broken relationship, an illness, an accident. Maybe we've had criticism last year. Of course, we didn't deserve it, but we had it. But we can't forgive or forget. Maybe the word should not be forget. Maybe the word should be forgive. An illustration comes from Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross. A friend of hers one day was reminding her about terrible things that someone had done to her. But she acted like she didn't remember. Her friend said, don't you remember that? Her response was, I distinctly remember I forgot it. It's not that we can't remember, but maybe we can stop allowing these memories to destroy us in the present. Maybe we can distinctly remember that we forgot. One day I visited a church member, and the subject of his conversation was on his father-in-law, who he hated. I don't remember why, I don't remember the circumstances, but whatever. He was he could not stand the presence of his father-in-law. He was angry, filled his life with hostility and bitterness towards this individual. We talked for a while, and I made a simple suggestion. Why don't you pray for him? He said, okay, I'll try. A few months later, he called me up and said the prayers had changed his life. The problem with sin is not so much the sin itself as what sin does to our hearts and minds. Ellen White wrote information about her husband and some of his problems. I'm kind of glad I'm not married to a prophet. Um, because listen to what she wrote. The Lord is seeking to teach my husband to have a spirit of forgiveness and forgetfulness of the dark passenger of his experience. The remembrances of the unpleasant past only sadden the present, and he lives over again the unpleasant portion of life's history. In so doing, he is clinging to the darkness as he is pressing the thorn deeper into his spirit. This is my husband's infirmity, and it is displeasing to God. God will heal his wounded spirit if he will let him. But in doing this, he will have to bury the past. He should not talk about it. He should not write about it. God will do this work for him. God will restore his mind and let him forget. But not my husband shall do this. How is your memory? Can you forget? Can you forgive? Bitterness destroys us from the inside not from the outside. So it is important to forget and forgive. Yes, we exist in our memories. This existence makes us who we are. But what do you choose to put in your memory? What do you choose to promote? We choose to focus our minds on whatever we want. And that makes us 
who we are. Hebrews 12:15. Look diligently lest any man fall from the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby be defiled. These bitter roots will grow up if we miss the grace of God, if we don't understand how God loves and accepts us and is able to free us from the bitterness of the past. One thing I do, says Paul, forgetting what is behind. So here we have forgetting the past. Now we come to the present. Forget the past because of the work at hand, what we must do now. In Philippians 3, chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. We have a work to do today, and the things of the past can be an anchor to that work. Paul used the Greek word running, straining towards the goal. I don't know if you've heard or seen about the Olympic runner who was running towards his goal and looks back over his shoulder, not seeking the goal ahead, but looking to see if something's catching up. He lost the race. He was not paying attention to his goal, but rather he was looking backwards, focusing on past hours, hours and others, paralyzes us for present action. First, forgetting the past. Second, being in the present, forgetting the past so that we can work on the present. Third, forgetting the past because of the prize we seek in the future. Nothing can compare to the prize we seek. Our injuries of the past will pale in insignificance as we focus on the Lord. Our injuries are nothing compared to that. Can you imagine someone training his life to be an Olympic athlete? All that pain and suffering he went through. And he finally gets up there on the podium. They put the gold medal around his neck. And he says, man, that was hard work. I hated going through all of that. I didn't think so. It was worth it considering the prize that was sought. Jesus says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. In Luke 9.61, we find still another. I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. I remember someone else in the Bible. Lot's wife looked back. You know what happened there. Don't look back. Keep your focus on the future. My son in his school has a bear that's 50 years old. It's a teddy bear. They get to bring it home. When they bring it home, they write the stories about it. So this weekend, Fred E. Bear came home with us. And Fred E. Bear has a story for all of us today. Once upon a time in Fenton Forest, Fred E. Bear was thinking. Now, Fred E. Bear doesn't have a good memory. So he keeps a diary of everything, and especially the bad things. We can remember all those bad things. He wrote these down for years, and he kept them in a tree, way up in a hollow section of the tree. 
so that when he went to his hibernation for the winter, when he woke up, he'd have those things. He could remember all the bad things that happened to him. Well, this past year, after waking up from his nap, guess what? That tree was gone. Well, where did that tree go? I mean, he started yelling. He started ranting. He started looking everywhere for that tree. His diary was gone. How could he remember all the bad things that had been done to him? Well, he's ranting and raving, and finally Bucky Beaver comes over and says, What's going on? What's all the trouble? And the bear tells him, I'm missing my tree and my diary that's in the tree. Bucky Beaver says, Well, I know where the tree is. I cut it down to shore up the dam out there. I know exactly where it's at. Well, Fred was really angry now because now he couldn't remember what to be angry about. Bucky Beaver said, it's all right. It's all right. Here's a new diary. You can start it today. I'll be your first entry. May God help us to lose our diary. As Paul says, forgetting the past and pressing on to our goal.